We're going to have our second Bible reading now. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, you can open up. Uh, it's on Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to go from verse 26 through to chapter 4, verse 7. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Well, friends, if you keep your Bibles open to Galatians, I really do hope you've been finding our study in the series of Galatians, Galatians helpful for your own souls. It's, uh, we've been going through it a bit slowly, you know, a few verses each week. It's, it's a bit like um, when you eat cheesecake, you can't have too big of a slice. If you get too big of a slice, you get indigestion. So we have to take small chunks at a time. There's so much for us to learn and to grapple with, uh, but we do... We do trust that it is good for us, and so let's pray that that might be the case even today. So let's join in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your word once again, help us to see what we must see, to understand what we must understand, and to believe what you have offered us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you are a careful reader of Scripture, and you read the words of Scripture... And they're not just words on a page to you, but they're in fact truth to you. It's really hard not to be moved sometimes by what God has to say, to be moved emotionally. Because you come to parts of Scripture and and some parts are simply extremely confronting. In fact, some parts are terrifying if we really do believe them as not just the words on the page, but truth. Some are, in fact, quite hard to even imagine. They're words that almost pierce our hearts. One, for example, is this one, what Jesus said. It's a hard one to read because it's so confronting. This was a parable Jesus taught. In Matthew, Jesus said, This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I wonder how you felt just reading those words. Are they just merely words on a page? Or are they truth to you? Because if they are words of truth, and we really do believe it, that that is, in fact, the eternal destiny of so many, that that is, in fact, the place of anguish and dread and terror, for all eternity, where there is no running away from it whatsoever. I mean, you hear the words of Jesus describing that place, there is no escape. And you read that, 
And if you really do believe that they are words of truth, it's hard not to be moved by it because that is the plight of so many. And for us, we remember, well, that is what we deserved as well. But then we read the words of God and what God has done for the plight of those who face that. The glorious news of the gospel. We go from one extreme, the, the story, the image of judgment and how we go to the other extreme of the glory of the gospel. You can't help but be moved by that as well. Because what has God done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see, God didn't simply rescue us from that picture that Jesus described. God didn't simply rescue us from the flames of hell and brought us into his kingdom, into heaven, and made us the cleaners of heaven or the gardeners of heaven. You know, where heaven will be a place where we have to go around and, and clean the homes of the angels, do their gardening. Now, some of us might like that a lot. But you see, God has done far more than that. In fact, even if we were to make, be made cleaners and the gardeners of heaven, how should we respond if that were the case? If God brought us out of that picture that Jesus described into his kingdom, but we're the lowest rank how would you respond? I suspect the way we should respond is that we would still be so eternally grateful to God that he would still rescue us from the flames of hell to be part of his kingdom. We would still be, wouldn't we? But you see, what we read in the glory of the gospel, what God has in fact done, he has gone above and beyond. He not only snatched us from the clutches of death and hell, he did not simply transfer us from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of his son. He did not simply forgive us of our sins, your sins that you've committed, I will remember them no more. He did not simply declare us righteous, you are innocent, you are no longer guilty, you can come close to me. God did not simply allow us to have a place in his kingdom. You see, God has gone above and beyond. And when we understand this truth that we'll be looking at today, it's hard not to be moved by what God has done because what has God done? He has lavished on us a love that is so overwhelming we could never have deserved it because what has God done? But just like what we saw in the kids' talk, God has adopted us into his heavenly family. We are made children of God, bestowed with the status as heirs of God, God says to us, says to you, you are mine. You're not my cleaners. You're not my gardeners. You're not my servants. You are my children. And all that is mine is yours as well forever. You see, when we truly understand those words of Scripture, what we read today, it's hard not to be moved by it because it is real. You see, there is no greater privilege ever bestowed in all of creation than the privilege of sonship. John Owen, the Puritan, he calls it our fountain privilege. J.I. Packer called it the climax of the gospel. This is the climax of the gospel. Sinclair Ferguson calls it the apex of creation. This is it. 
This is my favorite part of Galatians. Adoption. And so let's have a look at this passage. Because here we find our identity. Who are you? Who am I? Well, by faith we are sons of God. You see, if you want to define what is a Christian, how will you define a Christian? How will you define what it means for you to be a Christian? Well, we can define that in many ways, can't we? We can define a Christian as someone who's saved, who is a disciple of Jesus, who has a home in heaven. But I love this definition by Packer the best. He said, The richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. As simply as that. You want to know what a Christian is? Not someone who does a lot of good. Not someone who goes to church. Not someone who prays. Someone who has God as Father. And that is our identity if we by faith trust in Jesus Christ. You see, for me, for you to be a Christian is not just to bear our family name. You know, my family name, Huynh. But it is to bear the family name of God, my Father in heaven. I become his by his gracious adoption. And that's how Paul begins this passage. Who are you? Verse 26. Well, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, just in case any one of us here might think, well, why not daughters? Why sons? Well, it's because, you see, in the ancient world, it was the son. In fact, not just any son, not son number two or three or five or ten, but it was only the firstborn son who was heir to the father's estate. And daughters, and not just daughters, but son two, four, five, did not, were not afforded the same privilege or status. But you see, the glory of what God has done in the Bible, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, daughters and sons alike adopted as sons, as heirs of God, son number one. God elevates sons and daughters to the same level as the firstborn. Now, this is not to say, then, that God is everyone's father. You see, we like to think, oh, God's everyone's father. He's so nice, isn't he? He's this sort of like this old bearded man up there, and he's everyone's father. Well, no, that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. You see, not everyone can pray the Lord's Prayer and really mean it. What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who is in heaven. Not everyone can say that. It's not true for every single person. And that's because God is not everyone's Father. God is Lord of everyone. God is King of everyone because he made everyone and everything. Whether you believe that or not, he is King, he is Lord. But he's not everyone's Father. That is only reserved for some. And who are they? Well, they're the Christians. They're the Christians. The some are those Paul speaks of now in the next verse. Look at verse 27. They are those who have been baptized into Christ and clothed with him. Look at verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You see that? So who are the children of God? Who are the sons of God? Well, those who have been baptized into Christ. Now, what did Paul mean by that? Well, what Paul was doing here was helping us understand the richness of what happens when you become a Christian. Paul is describing what, in fact, takes place spiritually when you become a Christian. 
It's not just a matter of an intellectual exercise. Oh, I believe in Jesus now, and that is it. No, there is a spiritual reality that takes place. It's not as though Jesus is up there, I believe in him, he stays there, and I'm down here. No. When anyone comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, they are described as being baptized into Jesus. Do you notice that word there? Into Jesus. That is, we are joined with Jesus, united with him. You can't get any closer to Jesus than believing in him because because of that, you are united with him. So that when Jesus died, we died as well. And when Jesus rose from the dead, we rose as well to newness of life. I'm a new man when I believed in Jesus. And Paul also describes, I have been clothed with Christ. That is, I've put off my old filthy clothes, the clothes of sin and death, and I put on Jesus Christ. I put on his righteousness so that when God sees me, he sees his son. And I start to live in a way that reflects being clothed with Christ. His affections becomes my affections. His desires becomes my desires, and I start to reflect his character. Where he goes, I go. What he wants, I want. My life is so intertwined with Jesus Christ. That is a Christian. You see, over time, and I suspect we see amongst each other, over time, we're meant to be able to tell whether you or I are genuinely Christian. Because over time, we're meant to see more and more of the life of Jesus in you and in us. So that when I look at you and when you look at me, we're meant to see that looks so much like our Saviour, Jesus Christ. You see, if that is what it takes to become a Christian, to be united with Jesus by faith, simply by faith, what Paul then goes on to say now, then is he places everyone on the same level in terms of our standing before God. You see, when you become a Christian, there are no pecking orders. There are no caste. There are no first-class Christians, second-class Christians, no pecking order whatsoever. You see, it's important for Paul to teach this point because during his time and during the time of Jesus, Jewish men would wake up in the morning and in their devotion, their traditional prayer in the morning was, Blessed are you, O God, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That's how Jewish men woke up to pray. But now what Paul does is he shows that that is so wrong. Our standing before God has nothing to do with our race, nothing to do with our social status, nothing to do with our gender at all. You see, within the family of God, there is no ranking, no special privileges reserved for some Christians and not others. You know, it's not like going on a plane and you've got the first class people with the first class tickets and then the business class and then most of us are in the economy you walk past all those other class and you look down on them none of that amongst christians we're in the same class because we're you're as high as you can get as an heir of god and that's what paul is making the point about here you see in heaven it won't be as though you know the center's the throne where christ is and then you've got the martyrs and the reformers. They've got their mansion. You know, it's like the tool rack of heaven. And us, we're like the plebs. We, we get the little townhouses out in the suburbs of heaven. And we have to do our own gardening. Not like that at all. We are all on the same level. 
all heirs, no distinction. And that's his point, verses 28 to 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We were reflecting on that part of this passage in our growth group this past week, and, and we were just reflecting and just wondering how beautiful of a picture that is we see in our own church family, where we do see so many different ethnicities, nationalities, cultures. There are at least 20 different cultures in our church, and we're all of different age. You know, I'm middle-aged. There are some of you older than me, many of you younger than me. There's a, such a mixture, but we are all one in Christ. One older man shared with us uh, this past week when he first joined our church, he thought, wow, isn't this brilliant? A little glimpse of heaven where every tongue and nation will be praising our Lord together. We are all one in Christ Jesus, all heirs. And that is who we are. Now, if we understand that as not just words on a page, but truth, how can you not be moved by that? That God would do such a thing. I mean, try to picture what God has done. He's come from heaven to earth. And where did he find us? The gutters of earth. And what did he do? He fed us, for sure. He clothed us. He, he bound up our wounds. That's what we need. He gave us somewhere to live. More than that, God invited us into his home, a bit like that kids talk before. Adopted us. In fact, he says, you are my son. All that is mine is yours too. It's the fountain privilege. It's the climax of the Bible. It's the apex of creation. It, it, we have to understand how wonderful and glorious that is, that we can be children of God. J.I. Packer, he said this, and I love this um, quote he, he said, and, and you may have heard of it. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. It is the most glorious privilege. Sons of the King of the universe, that's who we are. Now that Paul has established that, he now gets us to remember who we once were, who we once were. And what Paul does now is he uses an illustration that comes from the Greco-Roman world to paint a picture of an heir coming to age, from childhood to adulthood, the coming of age. You see, in the ancient world, what would happen was there were well-defined process for when a Roman child heir would become heir in fact. And so a Roman child heir, the estate might be his. The promise is that you'll have it all one day. But he'll be under a guardian until he's about 14 years old. And for some, they'll be under trustees until they're 25. But when you're under a guardian, Paul's point here was that though you may have the status of an heir, though you can walk around your father's estate and think, well, this is all mine one day by promise, however, my freedom is limited. It is restricted. I cannot do what I want. I do not experience the special privileges of being an heir just yet. I, in fact, 
my freedom is almost gone. I'm, I'm no different to a slave because of the guardian. It's only when I come of age, that's when I get to enjoy the special promises of being an heir and to experience that. And that's the picture Paul's painting. So have a look, verses 1 to 3 now in chapter 4. He says, What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. And so what the Apostle Paul was doing here was to remind us of what life was like before Christ. When we were children in a sense, when we were still enslaved. And so if you're Jewish, the laws of Moses, they were somewhat enslaving, like a guardian, because they point out your faults and your mistakes. You're restricted in your freedom. You do not get to experience all the promises of God just yet until the coming of Christ. That's for the Jewish person. But it's the same for the Gentile. You see, the basic principles of this world, which Paul talks about here, work the same way. You're enslaved by the basic principles of this world or the man-made religions. You know, people look at the stars and the sun and they worship it. You're enslaved by that. People think, I can work my way up to God. You know, as though I can scratch God's back as though he needs it. That is enslaving. And so Paul's point is that, well, you're enslaved, whether you're Jew or Gentile, until you believe in Christ. And that's when you come of age. That's when you're rescued from the tyranny of these basic principles. And that's when you become a son of God. And so that was Paul's point at that point. But now he spends a bit more time describing how did God make it all possible? How is it that someone who lives at the gutters of the earth, who's a wretched sinner, who deserves nothing from God, can be brought into the household of God and adopted as his son. Well, that's what Paul spends more of his time now on. You see, we're, we, we live in a world where it's often hard to see people just crossing the road to help someone else. But what we see in Scripture is that God has crossed the universe to help us, to make us sons. He sent his son to make us sons. In fact, he also sent his spirit to assure us that we are his sons. You see, that's what Paul goes on to say here. God sent his son to make us sons. The climax of creation. You cannot get any higher in rank than being a son of God. You cannot. And that is what God has done, the goal of redemption. And this is the coming of age. So have a look at verses 4 to 5. When the time had fully come, that is in God's perfect timing, God sent his son, which means he's divine, fully divine, born of a woman, which means he's fully human, so that he can stand in our place, identify with us, identify with our brokenness and suffering. Born under the law, which means that Jesus experienced all that is demanded by the law, and he fulfilled it. In verse 5, to redeem those under the law. Now that's worth reflecting on for a moment. The idea of Jesus redeeming us, what did that mean? The word redemption comes from the ancient slave market. 
If I wanted to redeem a slave and set the slave free, I had to pay a ransom price. And it happened quite commonly in the ancient world. So let's just say a cousin who went into a bad business deal and lost everything. There's no bankruptcy rules. And so what would have to happen? That cousin would have to sell himself off as a slave and him and perhaps even his family. As the next of kin, what you could do to set your cousin free is to redeem him. And you redeem him by paying the ransom price. And that's what Jesus has come to do, to redeem those under the law. And what was the price? His own life. His own life on the cross. And for what ultimate purpose? Verse 5. That we might receive the full rights of sons that we might have sonship. God sent his son so that we might become sons of God, the climax of creation. But how can I be certain? I mean, we can read it. We can understand theology. We can understand it with our minds. But how can we be certain? Are you certain that you are a child of God's? How can you be absolutely certain? Well, what God has done is that he sent not just his son, but he also sent his spirit to assure us of that adoption. He says, it's one thing to know that Jesus died for me and made me a son of God, but it is another for God to pour out his spirit into our hearts so that we just not only know it, but experience it. It's not just objective truth, I'm a son of God, but it is subjective experience. I know it in my heart. And so how can you be so certain that you are a child of God? It's because of God's Spirit in me, confirming it with my Spirit, enabling me to cry out to God as Father. And here in this wonderful verse, it's in fact quite a dense verse, but it's a short verse, verse 6. We see the Trinity at work. Father, Son, Spirit, working together for our salvation. Look at verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. You know how some Christians say, I don't feel close to God today, or I like to get closer to God, or I like to I feel like I want to get closer to God. How would you answer that? Well, the answer is here. How can you get any closer to God? if by God's Spirit we have him in us already, in our hearts. There is no way of getting any closer to God at all. But now isn't this interesting how the Holy Spirit is is described here? The Holy Spirit is described here as the Spirit of Christ. Do you pick that up? Why? Was it because Paul was a bit confused here and he, you know, just made a mistake? Well, no. What he was expressing here was the intra-trinitarian relationship the relationship between father son and spirit jesus is in the father the father is in jesus jesus is in the spirit the spirit is in jesus and so when the spirit of the son comes into our hearts what is in fact happening is that we are swept into the intra-trinitarian relationship of god father son and spirit it's actually quite profound It's not like God is saying, you are my son and you stay at a distance. God has said, you are my son, 
come into the eternal relationship that I have always enjoyed between Father, Son, and Spirit. It is profound. And that's what Jesus meant before he went back to heaven. In John 14, Jesus said, On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. You see, Father, Son, Spirit eternally enjoying each other's fellowship for all eternity. Now, we've been swept up into that, to enjoy it by the Spirit of God. And how can we know with certainty that God is my Father? Well, look at verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Now, Abba is Aramaic. It's an intimate, affectionate word in Aramaic. That means dad. Dad. That is what the Spirit enables us to cry out to God as. Not father at a distance, but dad. The Spirit enables us to cry that out. You see, it's the fountain privilege that John Owen spoke about. Out of the entire universe, out of the entire world, we can call God Dad. I mean, you think about that for a moment. In, in this room, in fact, I'm not even sure if they're all here, but only three can call me Dad. I'm sure you all want that privilege to call you know, me your Dad, but you know, I'm not that old. Only three can. You know, my children, S Academy, Ethan, it's a privilege for them. It is the relationship we get to enjoy. But all of us can call God our dad because that is what he has done for us in the gospel. God sent his son to secure our sonship and God sent his spirit to enable us to experience this sonship, the climax of creation. And now finally, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. I mean, how can you not be moved by what God has said there? That we can be children of God? It still baffles me that God would bestow such a privilege upon us. I mean, you know that scene? I think I've shared this illustration in the past, but that scene from The Lion King, that wonderful classic, that Disney movie, when the king Mufasa... He was sitting on Pride Rock, and next to him was his firstborn son, his, his son Simba. He looks over the horizon, and he says to his son Simba, everything that the light touches is our kingdom. It's just a beautiful scene. The father telling his son, all that the light touches will one day be yours. Well, in a sense, that's what God has done for us. God says, look, my sons, at everything that the light touches, to the furthest reach of the galaxies, to the universe, everything that the light touches, everything in all creation, the highest mountains, the lowest valleys, every animal in the kingdom, everything belongs to Christ, but belongs to you too. You see, God did not have to do that. And so as I was reflecting on this over the last few weeks, you can't help but be moved by what God has done. Because God did not have to do it at all. God already had an heir. 
Did you realize that? God already had an heir. You see, in the ancient world, you don't adopt a son if you've got your own heir already. Why would you? God already had his own heir in his son, Jesus Christ. And so what God has done here is out of the riches of his mercy, the overflow of his love, God says, you can be my heir as well. He was not bound to do that. He did not have to do that. He could, in fact, just adopt us into his family. That would be one thing already. And just make us, you know, son number three, number five, number 500, number five million. And that would be perfectly okay. But what did he make us? Just like his firstborn, an heir. Number one, co-heirs with Christ. God chooses to love us as much as he loves his own true son, Jesus Christ. Doesn't that blow your mind? God will set the same love upon you, the same love he will put upon his son. Doesn't that just blow your mind? So extraordinary. It's been described, this is just like a fairy tale. How could it be true? Well, J.I. Packer, he said this. He said, We are all loved just as fully as Jesus is loved. I mean, just even reflecting on those words. If God has already adopted us into his family, it means that God will never send us away. Nothing we do in life, God will say, you are no longer mine. You don't do that once you have adopted. And then we read on. It's like a fairy tale. The reigning monarch adopts waifs and strays to make princes of them. But praise God, it is not a fairy tale. It is hard and solid fact, founded on the bedrock of free and sovereign grace. You see, God has gone above and beyond. It's the climax of creation. It is our fountain privilege. It is infinitely, many more times better than what we could have ever, ever imagined. It's why this is my favorite part of Galatians. And so the question now is, if this is true, not just words on a page, but truth, how do we live in light of it? I mean, we try to plumb the depths of God's love for us. We cannot reach the end. You cannot plumb the depths of God's love. And I've heard it described, we are sinking into the grace of Jesus. We are sinking into the love of God and we just never recover from it. Don't you love that? Sink so deep into the love of God and you just never recover from it. But how do we live in light of this glorious truth? Well, three things I like to say. We live without fear. If God is my Father, what do I have to fear? We live with nothing to lose. Why? Because I'm an heir of God. And we live with the great glory, the hope of glory to come, what God has instilled for those who love him. You see, firstly... We can say that if God is my dad, if God is really my dad, my father in heaven, nothing in all of creation, the mighty lions, the, the majestic whales, they don't get to call God father, but we do. If we understand that, it should dispel every fear in our life. I mean, what do I have to fear? If God loves me so much, as much as he loves his own son, I can call God Abba, Father, and when I do, 
I'm not crying out to an absentee father who does not want to know his children. I'm not crying out to one who is too busy for me. But I'm crying out to one who is ready, with openness, with love, with strong arms, ready to help, ready to carry our burdens. And so I wonder whether sometimes as Christians, we can get so caught up with whatever we're caught up with, and we forget this glorious truth. I'm a son of God, the greatest privilege of all. May we walk through life as a pilgrim. We walk through life with all our sicknesses, poverty, disappointments, sufferings, heart decisions, overwhelming burdens, even loneliness. What do I have to fear? Because I can face them with my dad with me. With my dad with me. I sink into the love of my father and I just never recover from it. I've got nothing to fear, but I've also got nothing to lose. If you understand this truth, there is nothing for us to lose. If I have God, I've got everything. If I have God as Father, I have absolutely everything. I mean, this teaches how tightly we hold on to the things of this world. This is an important lesson for us. If I am an heir of the universe, but my focus is just in this world, something is amiss there, isn't it? If my focus is just looking down upon this earth to the stuff that I hold on to, something is amiss. If I'm an heir of the universe, and if I live then from wardrobe to wardrobe, I just want to upgrade my wardrobe, from stuff to stuff, from gadget to gadget, from car to car, from home to home, something is not right. The universe is mine already. That's what God has promised. Something is not right there. I mean, we have to comprehend that the inheritance that is ours in Christ, what can compare? And so who cares if I miss out on the nice stuff of life? And that is something we need to hear, especially in this part of the world and in this part of Melbourne, where we can be so comfortable, myself included. Who cares if I don't get to eat or the nice fine dining that I see people post? Who cares? Who cares if I don't get to enjoy what so many with much get to enjoy the world cruises? Who cares? Who cares if I don't get to have all the nice stuff, the jacuzzis? Who cares if I don't get all the adventures that, that people get to do? Not saying that they're bad things. If we do, we receive it with thanks. But I must never think I'm missing out. Christians, brothers, sisters, we don't live like we're missing out because we have it already. You know, we have to comprehend the inheritance that is ours already as heirs of God. Because sometimes I feel like our vision of God is just so small, so earthbound, but we need to look up. It is the universe, it is the glory of God. What do I have to lose? What do I have to lose if I'm more generous with my stuff? What do I have to lose if I'm more sacrificial with my time? What do I have to lose if I invest my life in the things of the kingdom of God? Because so many of our things, especially in this part of the world and this part of Melbourne, is so earthbound. But yet I want to live like I've got nothing to lose because I have it already. God is my Father. 
And finally, nothing to fear, nothing to lose, but everything to gain with the hope of glory. If I truly understand what it means to be a Christian, who is a Christian? One who has God as Father. Then my spirit takes wings and flies. It flies because I've got glory to look forward to. Death does not frighten me, for it will be the day of glory when I run into one who is my Father with open arms, sweet, powerful, comforting, embracing arms. You see, the story of a Christian is always our best time is not now. The best part of our story is not now. It is yet to come. The future is as bright as the promises of God and his promise is that he loves us as much as he loves his own beloved son. That's my family. Is that your family as well? Well, let me end with these words from Charles Wesley's hymn. He said, Oh, how shall I the goodness tell, Father, which thou to me hast shown, that I, a child of wrath and hell, I should be called a child of God. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we praise you so much for what you have done in sending your Son that we might be considered sons of God and in also sending your Spirit into our hearts that we might cry out and call Father Abba. And that is who we are. We belong to you. And so help us, Lord, to live lives like we belong to your family with nothing to fear, nothing to lose, but with the hope of glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.